Hi guys, it's Ali McKenzie here, sports physio from the UK, and welcome back to another episode of Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's episode, we have part one in a three-part series with Matthew Buckthorpe. Matt is a sports science, strength and conditioning coach, researcher and lecturer from the UK. He has a ton of experience working in elite performance and he specialises in particular in late stage on-field rehab. In the first episode, Matt is going to discuss his PhD work around the determinants of rate of force development and how it relates to both injury and performance. In the follow-ups parts two and three, Matt is going to discuss some of his clinical frameworks and perspectives around producing high quality on-field rehab. Matt has an excellent way of translating research to clinical practice and these conversations provide a lot of insight that I'm sure you will find useful to inform your performance. Additionally, links to all Matt's research discussed across this series will be available in the show notes. This episode has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of Forstex, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force plate system. Forstex can help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. With an incredibly simple setup and intuitive software, Forstex automatically detects over 15 common force plate tests and analyzes them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights on your athletes. To learn more, head over to our sponsor, boldperformance.com. You're listening to Research Unpacked from the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Alistair McKenzie, and here is today's episode with Matthew Buckthorpe. Matt, thanks for coming on the show, mate, and giving up some of your time. How are you, bud? Yeah, very good. Thanks, thanks for having me, Ali. It's great to um, great to join you. It's a pleasure. Um, so, I'm really looking forward to having these conversations with you because we're going to talk a lot about um, some really interesting practical insight. Um, we're going to split the series into two key topics. Really, we're going to first series. We're going to look at rate of force development and the performance and injury perspectives around that. And then the second part, we're going to talk about your on-field papers. So how do you create um, high-quality on-field rehab? So lots of good content in there. I'm really looking forward to it. But before we get started, do you mind just giving a bit of an introduction to yourself and your background for the listeners? Yeah, cool. Yeah, of course. So, um, yeah, obviously, Matt Buckthorpe, um, I guess from sport and exercise science background. So kind of came through sports science Um First at kind of Leeds Uni and then on to to Loughborough where did uh, sports science kind of interdisciplinary wise and then stayed on and did a PhD in neuromuscular performance, um, uh, same place up at Loughborough. Had a bit of a stint in football for a couple of years, just some internships as as we all need to do to get our experience, of course, and then really started to get quite a strong passion for late stage rehab, on field rehab uh, during my time at Fulham. Um, they had a very, very good medical department there and an excellent on-field coach in Sean Reed at that point. So I got really interested in that on-field um, side. And what I kind of noticed was this disconnect between sort of sport and exercise science, strength and conditioning, and physiotherapy as a whole. So I really wanted to embed myself within a medical team. So I joined Isokinetic um, Medical Group about 10 years ago. So Isokinetic are a FIFA medical center of excellence. They have uh, seven clinics over in Italy and then they built one in London as well and yeah I kind of joined them with a view of of improving my understanding around rehab improve my understanding particularly around on-field rehab late stage rehab um with a viewpoint of becoming a better sport and exercise scientist originally if I'm being honest with a view of going back into football with that kind of enhanced understanding of sports medicine um 
but then as I, the more years I kind of did it, I, I, I got a stronger passion for, for late stage rehab and probably less so for performance. I'm still very interested in performance, but you know, I particularly enjoy that late stage rehab, that on field piece. And isokinetic was a good environment for me to, to do that. So I spent five years in a clinical capacity with, with isokinetic, sort of doing the on field rehab, um, late stage reconditioning, um, pool based stuff. And then focused around education and research. So started to push um, a focus on translational research, trying to get some of the, the processes we were doing there published. And then a couple of years ago, I joined St. Mary's University, um, Twickenham in London, um, in a sort of lecturing capacity. And so I'm uh, based in kind of physiology and S&C capacity up, up at, um, at St. Mary's. That's kind of my story to date, I guess. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, a lot of um, experience with a lot of highly qualified, highly um, practitioners to learn from. But also, some of the some of the papers that you publish kind of reflect that. I think with um, your on field rehab and your ACL and your hamstring kind of things, that transition and the combining the two, I really did get a sense when I was reading through those that it's not it's performance focused rehab really. Yeah, exactly. And then one piece I forgot there was I, I spent a bit of time working with um, the guys over at Southampton Football Club for a few years. Um, again, focused on that kind of translational research. So working with the guys there, we, we did a couple of hamstring pieces around hamstring injury prevention. And as you said, it's kind of, for me, it's about inputting sport and exercise science S&C into the rehab process. And I think there's still a tendency for the re for well, depends what you want to call it if you want to call it rehab but um the, the recovery process after injury is still very medicalized and i think what happens is there is this continuum from medicine through to performance or from you know um that that early stage right the way through to, to returning people to performance and, and in the end we're getting people back to performance in order to do that you've got to know about performance science and a lot of what i thought was relevant um in terms of sports science and SNC, particularly neuromuscular function, I, I I just didn't have the confidence in the first couple of years. And so I first couple of years um, in the medical team, I, I was a bit passive and I just thought, you know, I think this is relevant, but I don't know. I don't know enough to challenge the medics. Um, and then as you said that I think so relevant, my SNC sports science, a lot of, a lot of exercise medicine is just, it's so relevant for the injury process. And yeah, I, I so I have a, a big passion on translating that now into into practice yeah brilliant mate and um i agree and i think from my journey at the moment where i'm i'm on i'm on like the physio side and everything i'm reading or my the way i'm trying to project it and the trajectory of my career is way more performance focused now so i'm kind of comfortable with a lot of the medical side but now it's like all right, how can I how can I put load into them as soon as possible and what's appropriate? How can I maintain? So especially with the on-field rehab that we're going to talk about, um, when I read through that paper and I was reading about some of the preventing deconditioning and that, that, that kind of thing. So for me, it's how to enhance that as early as possible to dampen that, that blow when they get with time loss. So yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to hearing that one. But the first one we're going to talk about... Um, it's just all about rate of force development. So you've published um, a few. I know you were with John Folland at Loughborough, right? And um, yeah, so you published quite a few around rate of force development and the importance of it. And I think it's a topic that's discussed quite a lot now. Um, so let's dive in. And, and firstly, I guess, just 
what is rate of force development and how do we measure it and what does it mean for us clinically? Yeah, cool. Yeah, sure. So, yeah, obviously my PhD was around rate of force development, particularly around sort of the neural contributions to it. And as you said, I was up with Jonathan Folland and they've got a fantastic lab up there. Jonathan's done some tremendous work in this area. Um, and he's got, you know, a lot, a lot of people like myself who have done PhDs under him. Um, but yeah, in terms of rate of force development, it's essentially distinct from maximal strength. And there are two forms of strength, really. One's maximal, which is your ability to produce your peak force. And rate of force development is your ability to increase force from low or resting levels as fast as possible. So rather than the, the, the peak force you can achieve, it's much more concerned with the slope of the force time curve or going from low to high very, very fast. So it has more of a time dependent factor on it, increasing force as quickly as, as possible. Yeah, brilliant. And with regards to, you just touched on there, some of the neural components um, with your PhD, what kind of things did you look at to and what, what contributes from both a neural and kind of contractile um, perspective with regards to yeah. rate of force development? Yeah, sure. So yeah, PhD was looking at yeah, neural determinants. And essentially, when you're looking at the determinants, you're thinking, okay, what, what factors explain differences in performance across different people? So, you know, why is one person stronger than someone else? So why does someone get stronger after a period of training? And it's trying to detail those under, underpinning mechanisms. And so the, my PhD was mostly f- concerned with the, the neural mechanisms. So I wanted to understand how important is the nervous system. And in terms of my PhD, one one of the pieces was was a, a paper with Jonathan Folland on the determinants of, of rate of force development, and we looked at using surface electromyography, um, some some in, intrinsic contractile properties, which basically means we're we're electrocuting people in essence, so sending electrical signals down there. We did the knee extensors, so sending electrical signals into the femoral nerve to make the muscle contract without voluntary control. So you can basically look at the muscle's capacity for force production without voluntary control. So theoretically, it's the the potential of the muscle. And then what you do is you look at the potential or the capacity versus what people can actually do. And you can work out some kind of ratio there. And so we were looking at neural control with surface EMG and then comparing voluntary versus evoked force um, to look at that, that capacity. And as well as the twitch kind of force you can also look at the twitch characteristics in terms of like rate of force development and 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 how fast those those twitch um, characteristics change and what we really detailed was that rate of force development has different determinants depending on the, the time of the force that you're looking at so with rate of force development you've got force onset and you've got peak force and then you've got the slope and so the slope actually isn't just a linear line it starts out quite slow it has a rapid period and then it slows down a little bit before hitting the 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 peak the peak force and and you can basically assess it either as peak rate of force development or in distinct time windows so we were looking at zero to 50 50 to 100 and 100 to 50 100 to 50 the main reason we do that is because depending on the time that dictates the relevance to sports performance so injuries happen really quickly so an acl injury happens within 50 milliseconds after ground contact so as soon as you hit the floor 50 milliseconds you've ruptured your acl very similar time frame with with atfl sprains as well so really rapid 
Sprint running has ground contact times of around 100 milliseconds at top speed, whereas things like drop jumps are a little bit longer and cutting and, and changing direction, you know, we're looking more around 200, 250 milliseconds. So lots of movements have different time characteristics. So we wanted to understand the determinants at different time points. And in essence, what we showed was the very early phase was mostly influenced by neural activation. So your ability to go from essentially off to, to peak activation, which makes sense. It's kind of the same as going from low force to high force. How quickly can you activate those muscles and go from low activation to high activation? So I like to term that EMG rise. So how fast can you increase the, the EMG or the, the neural activation? The, the middle period, which is the, the fastest slope of the force time curve, that was, that was explained by mostly the, 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 um, what's called the octet. It's basically really high frequency electrical stimulation that drives the muscle at its maximal rate of force development. So basically the muscle tendon unit's capacity for rate of force development, that was the main determinant of performance during the middle phase. That's probably because most people are at full activation already. So it takes maybe 50 milliseconds to achieve full activation. Some people are a lot faster, some are slower. And then the middle period when you already have high activation, it's more about the contractile properties of the muscle. And then basically from 100 milliseconds onwards, maximal strength explains performance. So the relevance there is that if, you, if you're looking at time, looking at motion that has a time characteristic longer than 100, 150 milliseconds, strength is going to be the main determinant. Anything less than 100 milliseconds, neural activation and contractile properties will be the main determinants. Um, the role of maximal strength changes through the, the time period. It's very small at the start, very strong role towards the end of the force time curve. And that makes sense as you start to get towards the, the peak of that, of that curve as well. Yeah, fantastic answers, mate. Um, a lot of questions I've already going to ask already answered. But... Okay. Sorry, I've ruined those <laughs> No, no, it's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. Carry on. Um, I guess one of my questions around the neural properties, around EMG, I've been obviously reading up around this before, before we sat down, is the, uh, rate coding seems to be an important... Uh, characteristic so how fast um you you can set, send signals um can you talk a little bit about the difference between rate coding and, and motor recruitment when it comes to an, an emg perspective yeah of course so um obviously we've got two parallel mechanisms of controlling force so so rate coding essentially is the, the frequency at which we're driving the muscle so the relevance for that is that um obviously we've got different types of force production so you've got what's called a twitch a twitch is basically a single electrical impulse that goes into the muscle and it causes quite a low low intensity contraction um, and then it relaxes very quickly so it sees this little little change and, and depending on the the fiber type you have different twitch responses so we know that slow twitch has a slow increase in force reasonably low levels of force and then a slow relaxation time so that's why they're called slow twitch. When you contract them with electrical activity, they show a slow force time curve. Um, and then they get faster and higher as you go towards the, the other, you know, um, type 2As and type 2Xs. So type 2X has a very steep and, and, um, short, uh, short time curve. It, it contracts really quickly and it relaxes really quickly. So that, that, those muscles, of course, are very, designed for switching on and off at very high forces very rapidly. 
So that's why they're typically used for things like sprinting, of course. They're also fatigable. Um, so that's how we control, to some degree, forces. We send higher firing frequencies into the muscle. And, and it takes at least 50 hertz to drive the muscle at its maximal force production to create tetanic fusion of the muscle. So we need 50 hertz ready to drive a muscle maximally. Um, and so we can, if we don't drive the muscle at a sufficient firing frequency, we won't see maximal force production. Um, the other element is around recruitment. So we know based on the, what's called the Henneman size principle that you recruit slow motor units first, and then the, the larger, faster motor units get recruited in a systemic order. So basically, we under low force contraction, we use our our, our you know our postural stabilizers, our low our low threshold motor units because they're designed for low force jobs. And then as the task requires more and more force we start to recruit these type 2 motor units so um most of the time when we're talking about voluntary activation we're normally talking about an inability to recruit the really high threshold motor units so your type 2 x's because they've got a higher threshold they're a lot harder you need much higher neural drive to be able to activate them um whereas normally firing frequency is is maximal in most muscles um and and then Recruitment's normally the missing bit. For me, where this becomes really relevant actually is more for rate of force development because the firing frequency to achieve peak rate of force development is much higher. So it takes 300 hertz. That means 300 signals per second to drive the muscle at its maximal rate of force development. And so it's probably quite easy to achieve peak fusion of a muscle maximally but it's hard to drive the muscle at its maximal rate of force development. And that's really where things like ballistic training, plyometric training, Olympic lifting, all of these explosive strength training variables are all around trying to fire that motor unit um, at a much faster frequency. So that's what we're trying to train. So when we're talking about rate coding, we're trying to send fast, more and more signals to the muscle to increase its force production a lot faster. On an EMG level, um, you can look at rate coding through what's called the frequency analysis. So you can look at, you know, how, how many of these signals are getting fired through the, the EMG analysis. And so if you've got a high frequency, you're going to have higher firing rates, a lower frequency, you've got lower firing rates. Um, and, and yeah, so the, the, the relevance there would, would be that the EMG is a useful tool for looking at firing frequency versus recruitment. Um, and, and yeah, if you, analyze that signal and, and EMGs come on a lot in recent years. So now it's, it's becoming quite an advanced technique that's very different to what it was, was um, five, 10 years ago. Um, but yeah, the EMG stuff now you can consider frequency and, and recruitment as well. Yeah. Fantastic. And we had um, Andreas Heggy on the show a while ago and, and he used high density EMG yeah. on, on hamstrings, which is an example of what you're talking about is how, how it's advanced. Um, in that episode and in parts of your paper, especially with uh, John Folland, you talked about the contractile elements and even things like the effective architecture of the muscle will determine how, um, so for a, a pinnated muscle, will determine how it can stay close to its um, ideal for uh, length to contract. And with regards to like training at different muscle lengths and, and fascicle lengths and stuff like that, can you discuss a little bit about the role of architecture um, on foot rate of force development in that respect? Yeah, yeah, of course. So obviously, yeah, when we're, when we're thinking about rate of force development, we're always thinking about, you know, we've got to contract the muscle. The muscle, of course, 
contracts, it pulls on tendon, and then the tendon will, of course, act on bone. So everything we're doing is is, is the neuromuscular and, and, and tendinoskeletal systems all interacting together. And obviously, a lot of the time, people sometimes presume that, that the muscle runs from tendon end to tendon end. And we know it doesn't. We know that muscles will insert on the tendon aponeurosis in terms of they have an angle of pination. And, and so they don't run from end to end of the, the, the free tendon. They, they insert into the aponeurosis. And when they contract, they pull on this, the aponeurosis or the epimysium tendon sheath. And then that pulls on the end of the tendon. So obviously muscles can have their fascicles arranged in different angles. And if, depending on the arrangement, that depends whether or not you have more muscle fibers in series or more muscle fibers in parallel. So more muscle fibers in parallel, um, so next to each other, means that you've got more muscle fibers to produce force. So you've got a higher cross-sectional area, higher physiological cross-sectional area. So that means you can potentially produce more more force. Um, obviously, they're, they're not getting pulled at a straight angle, so they're going off at an angle. Um, so that means that you, for every increase in, 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 in fiber size, you, you don't have, you actually lose a little bit of strength because based on maths principles, the cosine of the angle, basically. But um, won't worry too much on that. Um, basically, for rate of force development, obviously, we're, we've it been isometric and with it been at low velocity in series is probably slightly less less relevant um so the in series stuff means that you've got more muscle fibers in in um in, in in series in a row so you've got better shortening velocity so that's more designed for high high velocity movements so the hamstrings we know work at high velocities during sprinting so we need muscles to be in in series we need longer muscle fascicles um for rate of force development the evidence isn't isn't fantastic um, but you would, um, one, you would expect to have more fascicles in parallel. You would then expect to have a, a stronger, um, a stronger muscle. So you would be able to produce more force. Um, but you would also potentially expect the relative rate of force development to drop. So the absolute rate of force development might be better because you're technically stronger, but then the relative rate of force development will drop because those, those muscles can't shorten at the same rate. So they, they won't shorten as quickly. Um, so I guess it's that that trade-off between relative and absolute force. And, and the relevance, of course, for, for for injuries, I think, is more relevant. For muscle injuries is where our angle of pination becomes much more relevant. Um, so we've, we've obviously we've got the, the, the guys out of Australia with their excellent stuff on muscle fascicle length and angle of pination. And if the longer the muscle fascicle, the less likely it is to get damage through eccentric contractions. Um, but I think where rate of force development falls down at the moment is most of it's isometric, and most, so it's it's done you know without an impact of velocity really, um, and it's normally done in single joint situations that are quite controlled. Um, so we probably don't fully understand the role of architecture yet on RFD, but um, I think yeah, as we advance technologically wise, we'll probably know a bit more. Yeah, fantastic. And we touched um, a little bit earlier on the role of right of force development in athletic performance and, and injury prevention. If we focus a little bit about on performance first, um, we spoke about the amount of force that you can produce in the first 100 milliseconds with regards to contact of, of um, sprinting, change of direction, I'm assuming, maybe a little bit longer. Um, what are your thoughts around um, assessing that and assessing an athlete's ability to do that? 
um, what kind of tools do you use and potentially how would you go and try and influence um, a positive change when you find yep. something that might be down? Yep, sure. So, yeah, as you said there, I think it's important that we do assess rate of force development as part of an athlete's um, overall screening protocol. So we do know maximal strength is one variable, but your rate of force development is equally important. Um, I like to place these into contexts with the other neuromuscular performance measures, so reactive strength index and, of course, peak power and um, and also sort of the role of coordination as well. Um, but rate of force development is one important variable, probably a mix five neuromuscular variables. So I always put it into context. When I was first doing my research, you know, I was like, oh, it's all about rate of force development. And then you realize that it's, it's just one variable amongst a mix of lots of variables. And as researchers, we get so obsessed with our, our little area. But um, So rate of force development should be included as part of a battery of tests. So we should be looking at max strength, rate of force development, peak power, reactive strength index um, as, as, a, as an overall neuromuscular profile. But in terms of measuring rate of force development, um, generally, I would assess you I would say you should assess it under a compound task like an isometric mid-five pull or an isometric squat. And the reason I said isometric is because at the moment um, we don't have a good and un- good enough understanding of, of how velocity impacts rate of force development. So we know f- based on the force velocity curve that when you see an increase in velocity, you can't produce as much force. And so during something like a jump, we're going from a static to a, to a, to a dynamic um, situation where we're increasing velocity acceleration. So the better the rate of force development at the start, the faster we'll be moving towards the end of the jump, which means that actually we're on a different bit of that force time curve. So velocity impacts our rate of force development measures. So that's why we normally do it isometrically. And um, it's also a little bit more reliable as well. Um, and so most of the time, I would say to say, use an isometric squat or a mid-five pull um, squat. You should do explosive contractions. So what I mean by that is there should be the instruction should be produce force as quickly and as and as and as hard as possible, as fast and as hard as possible. And what you um you should also make sure you do is you um you obviously have a reliable setup, so it should use typically in inbuilt or, or portable force plates. Those force plates should be obviously um, um, of course controlled and then make, making sure that you've um, you've set them up properly of course. And one of the other things we do need to consider when measuring it is what time points do we measure? So are we interested in 50 or 100 or 150 milliseconds? Are we interested in peak rate of force development? Are we interested in relative rate of force development? So that means rate of force development scale to maximal strength. Um, and then also um, alongside that, we need to make sure we've got a very stiff measurement system. So rate of force development, if you have a very what's called compliant system. So a lot of people use the isokinetic machine and the isokinetic machine has a lot of padding. So when you first start to produce force, the padding actually takes up that early bit of force as you start to compress the padding. So you need a really stiff measurement system. Um, so if you're going to measure single joint situations, you shouldn't have a lot of padding in like you have with an isokinetic machine, or if you're going to use a, a compound system, something like a, an isometric strength rig is, is useful. Um, so I would say measure in a compound movement, squat, mid-five pull. If you're doing it as part of rehab or you're interested in, of course, injury prevention, you might want to measure some, some single joint situations. So maybe some hamstring rate of force development. 
um, and, and the extensor rate of force development. Or if you're rehabbing an Achilles tendon, you might look at, you know, plantar flexor rate of force development. So on a performance level, I would say stick to compound tasks. On a prevention level, you might start to hone in a little bit more on certain muscle groups. And then on a rehab level, your course could be looking at shoulder. You know, you could be looking at external rotation rate of force development or knee extensor rate of force development. Um, but generally on a performance level, stick to compound tasks. Um, use explosive contractions. Make sure that you're doing what's called a short explosive contraction. So rather than asking them to produce force rapidly and holding it for five seconds, do very short one-second bouts. So basically you produce force explosively, then you relax. And the main reason you do that is because rate of force development is really not reliable at all. So you need to get multiple contractions and you need to average across those contractions. So if you're doing if you're doing explosive and maximal tasks where you ask them to produce force as quickly as possible and you sustain it, they're going to start to get fatigued and you can't do as many of those. So you should split off maximal and explosive. So what I would say is do, you know, if you're doing a squat setup, three isometric squat contractions, five seconds each with a minute's rest in between, then go straight into an explosive strength bout so you should do 10 explosive contractions lasting one second each for 30 seconds 20 to 30 seconds in between as well in terms of analyzing that trace you don't want to have counter movement so you can't you can't have a dip followed by a push because that massively impacts the signal so that you can't have a counter movement in the force trace and you shouldn't really assess the first 50 milliseconds even though it's the most relevant it's also the most unreliable so my study in 2012 showed that the, the variability from session to session was almost 20%. So a coefficient of variation of 20%, which means your smallest worthwhile difference is going to be 40%. 40% is very, very hard to see that. And it almost becomes a relevant um, measure. Plus, if you're using a software that uses an automated system, you know, obviously there are some very good ones on the market, um, an automated system that does the analysis for you is not going to be as good at identifying those force onsets. So actually, the early phase is going to be even less reliable. So what I would suggest is yeah, explosive contractions, maximal force, um, peak rate of force development, and then probably rate of force development at 100 and 150 milliseconds. Um, and then that will give you a good understanding of someone's profile. So are they, are they strong with poor rate of force development? Have they got good rate of force development and only moderate strength? You can't be really explosive if you're weak. Um, and then from there, of course, you, your training prescription would be, okay, let's focus on max strength. If you're, if you're not that strong and you've got good RFD, focus on max strength. Um, if you're really strong and you've got poor rate of force development, focus on rate of force development. And they, they both have distinct training. Um, they both have uh, uh, different training elements for them. So maybe you can talk about this in a different question, but strength training is not a great method for training rate of force development. So, so conventional heavy lifting does not really improve rate of force development, but um, basically screen them, look at maximal strength, look at relative rate of force development, a couple of time points, um, and then that'll help your prescription. But I won't, I won't talk too much more on that one, just in case you've got some more questions. No, that that's brilliant. And I think it's really interesting to know, um, the little nuances of testing like you said a little subtle change in the stiffness in the in the rig or if you're using even like a plyometric box for like a an Alex Natera kind of long hip bridge maybe that gives you a little bit of give as well so 
being real, real consistent, but also um, detailed with the setup, I think it's really, really important. And then breaking down how, how do you assess that and what's the most reliable number to get? And there's some really good little tips in there. I've written down a few with regards to the testing protocol for looking at rate of force development as opposed to looking at peak force. And it makes sense from reading your papers as to why you would you would look at those slightly different and expose those to slightly different based on the uh, neural elements of those. You mentioned um, making peak force relevant to maximal force, um, peak RFD relevant to maximal force. Is that right? Is that more, is that, is that, potentially more applicable to performance and rehab or is it does it influence one area a little bit more or less um so i just probably a combination of both i mean on a performance level um so looking at relative rate of force development so that just means that you know rather than saying you're hitting 150 newtons at, at, at um 100 sec 100 milliseconds we're saying okay you're hitting 25 percent of your maximum voluntary force so you're just normalizing to their to their peak force so you can kind of get rid of the role of strength because everything's relative to that person's maximal strength and that's where you can look at okay you're only hitting um so on a diagnostic point of view for rate of force development at 100 milliseconds you're only hitting 30 percent um and what we've shown in one of our studies was there's a there's a massive variability in re- relative rate of force development. And so at 50 milliseconds, some people can achieve up to 30% of their peak force. Other people can only achieve around, um, around 5%, 6%. So there's actually this massive variability. And we actually showed about a, a 10, 12 times variability. That meant the weakest person was was 12 times weaker than the, the, the strongest person. Well, the strongest person was 12 times stronger than the, the weakest person. But when you look at maximal strength, there's only about a two times difference. So that means that the strongest person is only two times stronger than the, the weakest person. Um, so that's where you can start to look at. What's your relative RFD? So if you, a relevant time point would be 100 milliseconds. And if you're only hitting 25% of your peak force, theoretically, you could almost double that through, through the right type of training. Um, so that's how I'd think about it. On a performance level, um, is relevant. On a rehab level, also relevant. Um, relative RFDs probably beginning to be slightly more influenced after an injury. Um, and that's it's a complex answer as to why. But what was shown in some of the ACR rehab is that at six months after an ACR reconstruction, some, some most patients have restored their their leg press strength their leg press maximal voluntary force but actually there's still about a 40 percent deficit in rate of force development so their peak force is restored but there's a 40 percent deficit in rfd the reason for that is probably because of the type of training um and probably also because of the loading paradigms that are used within the the strength process in that low intensity moderate to high volume it's probably going to favor more the low the low threshold motor units. It's probably going to favor more the slow twitch fibers, whereas we do need higher intensities to challenge those fast twitch fibers. We know that slow twitch and fast twitch have very similar specific tension. That means at peak force, that both fiber types can produce pretty similar levels of force. The specific tension, uh, so specific tension means that the amount of force that can be produced for a given amount of muscle size. So the, the specific tension is quite similar across fiber types, but actually the, the rate of force development and power characteristics are hugely different. 
So fast twitch are really designed for producing force really quickly and for producing force at higher velocities. So chances are that during rehab, low in, lower intensities are targeting more of the slow twitch fibers and they're not restoring those high threshold motor units. So people are going back with deficits in RFD. Um, and then in that follow as part of that study, it was the Angelozzi 2012 paper. They also showed that at 12 months, following some power-based training and radio force development training, they, they then fully restored RFD. Um, so I would say it's relevant for both on a performance and rehab level, but but certainly there's a need to incorporate it into the rehab process. And very few people are measuring rate of force development as part of rehab. Um, and unfortunately, very few people are measuring strength as part of rehab. So, but, so there is a, a reasonable distance we need to go with it. Yeah, fantastic. And um, I guess the last, last area that we're going to talk about um, – is the role of fatigue because you published another paper um, a bit later on in 2014 um, just on the the role of fatigue and its effect on rate of force development and obviously this is important for both performance um, for example a match day plus two monitoring and stuff like that might be influenced um, but also from a rehab point of view if the first in um, the first zero to 50 milliseconds of injury, for example. So can you talk a little bit about the, the roles of fatigue and what contributes primarily to a drop-off in RFD? Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I obviously did that paper um, back in 2014. And at that stage, we didn't, there wasn't anything on RFD and, and fatigue. And so what we did was this, basically it was a, a series of explosive isometric contractions um, and we looked at, again, EMG, same kind of setup as all of our stuff, EMG, uh, twitch contractions, octet, maximal contractions, and um, rate of force development. And what we showed over the series of 50 explosive contractions was quite a large drop-off in both maximal strength and rate of force development, but relative RFD decreased as well. So it was a bigger drop-off in rate of force development than there was maximal strength. Um the reason for that was a mix between neural and um, peripheral factors, neural and um, intrinsic contractile factors. There was quite a large drop-off in um, in voluntary activation, but there was also a drop-off in twitch contractions and, and the octet. Um, the, what we basically showed was because EMG or neural activation is a stronger determinant for RFD, any drop-off in activation is going to impact that a little bit more. So if you do have neural fatigue, so an inability to drive the muscle at sufficient firing frequency or an inability to recruit those motor units, then that have a bigger impact on RFD because it's a stronger determinant for RFD. Um, and then, so yeah, basically the relevance there is that the, the first 100 milliseconds was, was more impacted than peak force. And we know that the first 100 milliseconds is more important for, for joint stability um, and very rapid explosive contractions like sprint running um, as well. So this could maybe play a role in, in injuries, why some people get a little bit more injured, particularly the hamstrings um, towards the end of match play as well. Um, obviously, what we did look at with this, where it's different from some of the other fatigue bits, is I would characterize this as kind of acute fatigue. So this is sustained contractions over a short period of time. But if you allow recovery, that's probably going to come back to normal. Whereas the, the relevance in football is that's more about cumulative fatigue. So that's a reduction in force production over the course of match play. So with football, you have those intense five-minute periods that's going to cause fatigue. But 
you also, based on a lot of the hamstring research and the other stuff, is at, at half time you're going to have a 10, 15% drop off in strength. By the end of match play, you might be at 20%. So that's a slightly different type of fatigue. Um, so I only really looked at acute fatigue. I didn't look at the, um, the cumulative fatigue over the course of match play, which um, I kind of wish I did, to be fair, because um, then at that stage, no one had done it and it would have probably been a slightly more exciting study. But um, at least for this, we got to show that fatigue you know, impacts RFD a little bit more. And we did it in a very nice controlled lab way, um, a little bit less relevant to football, but um, at least it, 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 was, it was answered quite scientifically, which was, which was nice. That's brilliant. And I guess my question would be, if if you're observing a, an acute um, fatigue effect from your assessments or you, you, you put it down to acute fatigue effect, is there anything that you can do quite quickly or anything you recommend for with regards to like giving them some maximal isometric contraction work or giving them some ballistic contraction work to, to improve that? Or do, do you know what I'm saying? So if you're uh, coming in a bit yeah. fatigued... Yeah. is what kind of things would you do to try and prime them up a little bit? Say you've got a match day plus two and they've pulled up a little bit on your testing and you feel that their relative RFD is down and you want to, you don't think you can modify them or whatever. They've got an important game coming up, but is there anything you could give them, dose them to try and prime them up a little bit? Um, so it'd be speculative, um, in terms of probably not really an evidence-based answer, but I think that's the same thing with just general kind of prep, which we do a lot of people. You know, if people come in, they've got muscle soreness, they're feeling a bit tight, not feeling great. Um, probably wouldn't recommend anything above and beyond the typical massage, stretching, good um, good warm-up. Um, obviously, you probably could throw in some explosive isometrics in there. So a lot of the, um, you know, the PAP research stuff would use maximal contractions, um, of course, to try and get that that PAP effect. Um, there's not that much research around using explosive isometric contractions and seeing whether or not that would then have that, that same kind of post-activation potentiation of performance impact. Um, so there is possibly if you've got a, you know, you, if you have got that match day, um, match day plus two and you, or you've, you know, they are coming in and they are a bit stiff and they do need that. They just need to be ready to play that game. Probably putting in some explosives as part of the warm up. Um, Obviously, there with the explosive stuff, it's it's teasing at teasing out versus a traditional warm up. So it could just be that you get that same explosive effect just for doing a good warm up. You know, for doing some some high speed running and um, and just you know traditional good quality warm up might be the same impact. Um, so probably on an RFD level, probably nothing above and beyond what people would traditionally do. Um, you know, it's just a good good prep really. Cool, fantastic. And Sorry, not much, not much great insight there. No, that's all right. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> keep that's keep all doing right. what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's good to know. Um, I guess the last bit again would be: so, where do you see the future of RFD research kind of going? Um, if you were to maybe pick up another study or or try and publish a bit of research, where do you think the next step for rate of force development yeah. in in research is going to be? Yeah, so I think for me, where where some of the stuff that's come out is great is you know we've got really good understanding now of the determinants of performance and but the situation in which we've done it and the population in which it's been done is probably not the most reflective what i mean by that is we've mostly looked at isolated single joint tasks which we're presuming 
relates to, to functional performance. And we're all interested in functional performance, the ability to sprint, run, change direction, stabilize joints in under realistic tasks. So there's still that big disconnect from what's happening in the lab versus what we really want to understand. Um, so I think the need to transition to multiple joint setups is probably quite important. Um, secondly, around that is one of my studies looked at um, sort of the role of coordination and explaining the difference between isometric and isoinertial strength. So, you know, say a, an, an, an isometric squat setup versus a squat um, 1RM setup. Um, obviously, isometric measurements reduce the role of skill and coordination. So chances are what they're doing is they're overplaying the role of muscle morphology and, and underplaying the role of skill and coordination. So I think that we need to move towards more reflective tasks that, that allow for the role of skill and coordination to be more represented. Um, in that the simpler task you use, the less skill you require. Hence, it's not going to be that important as a determinant. Um, so most of our stuff has looked at agonist activation, whereas we've ignored that role of intermuscular coordination. So the agonist, the antagonist, the stabilizers, the synergists, and how important they are. Chances are, as soon as we move to a dynamic situation, your ability to appropriately stabilize that joint with, with good stabilizer control, that's probably quite important. Because if you don't get that stability, the muscle won't work optimally. So that role of the stabilizer system, I think, needs to have a stronger input. And also on that is the training studies need to be longer term. So you know, some excellent work from Jonathan Volland's lab and Neil Tillin did some, some fantastic stuff around explosive isometric contractions. So looking at short four-week studies, explosive isometrics, what they showed was by doing explosive isometrics, you can improve rate of force development by 40 to 50% over a four-week window. So really rapid improvements. But these are in untrained people. So chances are what happens is four to five weeks of training, you maximize agonist activation you actually no longer have a window for training. So that could just be a four to six week training adaptation. And then long-term stuff is muscle morphology, intrinsic contractile properties, maximal strength. So the fact that agonist activation is really important in the early phase could be because of the, the population we're looking at are just untrained individuals. And as soon as you switch to an elite population, you might find different determinants. Um, so I'd like to see that a little bit more reflective measurements that's that's more specific and then the population that's more relevant to what we're looking at as well. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, great answers, mate. And I guess that, that brings us to the end of um, part one where we're looking at RFD and soon we'll go on to some of your on-field rehab um, for parts two and three. Um, but just for our listeners, are you on social media or what's the best way for them to keep up to date? I know that you've got some interesting stuff coming out as always. How do, how is it best for the listeners to keep up to date with what you're doing? Probably research-wise probably is Twitter. And I'm not as active as I need to be. Um, so I probably need to start to be more active on Twitter. But um, So, yeah, it can be found on Twitter. So I think my Twitter handle is M underscore Bookfop. And... Um, yeah, I'll try and be more active on there. But most of the research stuff I've generally put out on that. So um, any new research would would go on Twitter. Um, and then, of course, LinkedIn, if anyone wants to contact me, very happy to be contacted. And um, email-wise, happy to share emails. My email is just mbookfulp at hotmail.com. Um, so again, if people want to reach out, got any questions, um, 
any you know need access to any papers i know sometimes that can be quite hard with a lot of paywalls um so myself like many researchers are really happy for you just to contact us email us ask for a paper um and very happy to do that as well thanks matt appreciate that thanks again for coming on and we'll catch up shortly for part two but thanks for your time for this one mate brilliant thanks very much charlie big thank you again to Matt for coming on the show and discussing in detail some of his PhD work around rate of force development and how it applies to both research and practice. Stay tuned for part two and three with Matt where he goes on to discuss some of his practical frameworks on producing high quality on-field rehab. To find more informed performance content head to informedperformance.com where you can find all our episodes as well as articles and courses from top professionals in performance and sports medicine. And don't forget, you can also find us on social media at at Performance on Instagram or at InformPod on Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Research Impact from the Informed Performance podcast. Catch us next time for more performance and sports medicine insights.